In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Twilight Zone is arguably one of the best and most influential shows in television history. The reason it endures, and is still being watched and talked about more than 60 years after its debut, can not only be traced to its superior storytelling and innovations in the genres of horror, science fiction, and fantasy, but the fact that each episode is embedded with a lesson on how to grapple with life's moral and existential dilemmas. Here to unpack those life lessons is Mark Dewidziak, author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Today on the show, Mark and I discuss the parable-like morals from a selection of Twilight Zone episodes drawn from those that are my favorites, Mark's favorites, and simply classic. And since Halloween is coming up, Mark and I both offer our picks for the just plain scariest episodes to watch. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Twilight Zone. All right, Mark Dewidziak, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So you wrote a book a few years ago called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And this book grew out of, I mean, you had been, you had introduced your daughter to the classic television shows you loved. And when she was a teenager, you decided it was time for her to watch your very favorite television show, which is also one of the favorite shows in my family. And that's the Twilight Zone. And as you watch the show together, you found yourself discussing life lessons that were embedded in the episodes and uh, realized the Twilight Zone, you know, really offers a good guide for life. Like there are parables and morality plays in the episodes. And so you wrote a book about those lessons. And I think it's interesting. You, you watched this with your daughter. She loved it. You mentioned in the book that you, you've taught classes, college classes. And when you mention classic television, right, kids are not, they don't know what the honeymooners are anymore. The Andy Griffith show has fallen out of the collective pop culture consciousness. But when you mentioned Twilight Zone, the kids still know about Twilight Zone. My kids, they're 11 and they're nine. They're loath to watch anything in black and white. And I'm like, I want to watch this classic movie. Is it black and white? No, I don't want to watch that. But Twilight Zone, they're all over. They, they love the Twilight Zone. So what is it about the Twilight Zone that gives it such timeless cross-generational appeal? The Twilight Zone was, is, and forever will be great storytelling. And you're not asking somebody who is young when you introduce this to, to them, you're not asking them to watch a 90-minute, two-hour movie. You're asking them to watch a half-hour episode. It's easily digested, and it has the appeal of sitting around the campfire of, let me tell you a story. Well, who doesn't want to hear a story? What, you know, and, and especially youngsters. And, you know, I discovered the Twilight Zone when I was very young. I discovered the Twilight Zone when I was not old enough to have seen it in its original run. It, it ended in 64. I was about seven years old, seven going on eight when it ended its run. So I was too young for it. But, but I grew up in New York and uh, a station there, WPIX Channel 11, 
immediately started rerunning the Twilight Zone. And I started watching it at about the age of 10 on in reruns. And I loved it for the reason probably most kids my age would have first loved it. I didn't know there were morality tales in these things. I didn't know there was something metaphoric going on behind this. I was watching it for the, the spook out factor. It had that same appeal of, you know, you remember when you were a kid and you try to creep out your friends with those urban legends that everybody knew that always existed everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, and it always said, and the only thing that was left, they found the hook on the bumper of the car. <laughs> right. You know, that, that, those kinds of stories. That was the appeal of the Twilight Zone for me at 10 years old. And I loved it, you know, because I had become a horror fan at seven years old. I loved the old universal horror movies. I loved anything that was 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 like that. The 1950 science fiction movies about giant creatures sacking major cities. I loved it all. And here comes the Twilight Zone. And it, it, it gave you a a daily creep out. And, and, and who didn't want that at 10 years old? And then when I was a teenager... I started watching them, and then you start to sense there's something more going on here. There's something going on behind all of this sort of creepiness. So the Twilight Zone can hook you when you're very young, just as it hooked me as a 10-year-old in 1966. It can hook a 10-year-old today for the very, very same reason. It has that wonderful, amazing fantasy storytelling aspect to it. And why wouldn't it? The principal writers were Rod Serling, Charles Beaumont, and Richard Matheson, which, you know, it's like the 1927 Yankees, a fantasy storytelling that was, was working on the show. So that's the, the I think that that's the, the short answer. Then you also have great performances. You had these, these great dialogue written by these great writers, and then they handed it to these great actors. Twilight Zone brings a lot of storytelling heat. And that's very, very appealing to all ages. And you can age up with the Twilight Zone. So you can be watching it at 10 and just saying, well, this is a creepy show. I love it. Then at 13, 14, you can start to watch it and realize there's something more. And then as an adult, you realize these are life lessons that you can carry, you know, with you all the way through. So it's just got a tremendous amount of appeal to it. And time, you know, the proof is in the pudding because... We're talking about a black and white show that started in 1959. Yeah, good. Yeah, good storytelling is transcendent. It's like fairy tales. We all know these fairy tales, and I think people will still talk about the Twilight Zone a hundred years from now. I, I agree. You know, and I think one of the things that gives it that sort of intellectual grit is exactly that. Is you know, Rod Serling figured something out with the Twilight Zone. You know, I tell this in the book. This is this is, uh, and it's no secret. Anybody who writes about the Twilight Zone can't get away from the fact that when Rod Serling started his career in broadcasting and radio and television in the late '40s and early '50s, television in particular was still the Wild West. It, it was a new medium. There were no rules. They were making it up as they went along. You could do just about anything if you could figure out how to do it with no money. And no budget and no special effects and no stars. If you could figure all that out, you could do anything. And as the 50s progressed, television grew up. And by the end of the decade, when there were no rules at the beginning of the decade, by the end of the decade, it was nothing but rules. And all of a sudden, it was getting harder and harder for Rod Serling, who had made his name 
as one of the angry young men of television. He and Patty Shayevsky were probably the two leading writers in the era, what was then called the, the golden age of, of live drama. And by the end of the decade, it was getting almost near impossible to get the message out. Everybody would be, was now, it was like, well, the, the sponsor won't like that. The stations in this area of the country won't like that, or the censor won't like that. And it was, it was becoming very, very frustrating. So Rod Serling took a calculated risk. He fled into the Twilight Zone, and he took a gamble. And the gamble was basically, I can write about the very same themes I've been writing about realistically all this time. Uh, all of the great themes of Rod Serling's career prejudice, how we treat children, how we treat old people. I can write about all of that. And the sponsors and the censors will not lift an eyebrow as long as it's couched in fantasy. And he, he, he was right. <laughs> the Twilight Zone addresses all of those things. And he didn't have any problem getting the message across anymore. And, you know, in the book, I call Rod a moralist in disguise. And that is actually an expression that comes from Mark Twain. And it actually comes from a letter that a little French girl sent to Mark Twain in the last decade of his life. A very perceptive young woman named Helene Picard, who wrote him essentially a note saying, I know the world knows you as a funny man, but I detect that behind all of the laughter and the humor is a very serious person who's trying to teach us something. And Mark Twain wrote back to this amazing young woman in France a letter which basically said, Shh, you've got it. You're on it. You're 100% correct. Don't tell anybody. But I am a moralist in disguise. Now, is there a better description for Rod Serling than that? Basically, what Mark Twain did with humor which was Mark Twain once said that for humor to live, it must not professedly teach and it must not professedly preach, but it must do both if it will live. In other words, the moral had to be hidden. The moral had to be hidden behind the laughter. And so what Rod Serling did was Rod Serling used fantasy the way Mark Twain used humor. He hid the message in fantasy. He was, like Mark Twain, a moralist in disguise. <laughs> and so the each Twilight Zone, especially Rod's, contained what I would call a parable. You know, now parables are, are storytelling, and it's a great way to teach somebody a lesson while entertaining them. And you want to say to yourself, now, where have I heard that before? Where have I heard this whole notion of parables uh, being moral lessons? And you might say, oh, 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 you're, you, you mean the New Testament. You're talking about, about Christ. Well, actually, you can go all the way back to the Greeks and Aesop. You know, it, it actually even goes back farther than that. The best way to sort of get every Aesop's fable ended with the unsaid words and the moral of the story is, and you could say the same thing about the Twilight Zone. Right. He, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what Rod was trying to do. Right. Right. And I think that's a good point you make about the Twilight Zone. Like He was a, a moralist in disguise. And what I love about the Twilight Zone, I'll watch some other TV shows or movies where it's obvious there's some sort of moral message or philosophical message they're kind of trying to convey. But it always feels ham-fisted. 
feels like they're just beating you over the head with it, and it doesn't land as much. And when I watch The Twilight Zone, I always, when, I, when I'm done with an ep, like a good episode of The Twilight Zone, not all of them are great, but like a really great episode, you, you're, you're left kind of disturbed and disoriented and like you stew on it for days, weeks. Sometimes I'm, there's like episodes I think about just years after I've seen it, I'm still thinking about it. And I think that's the talent, the talent and the expertise of, of Rod Serling, those other writers. Oh, so let's dig in some of these lessons from The Twilight Zone. There were 156 episodes during its five-season run. So there's a lot to choose from. So I thought to narrow it down, I'm going to focus on the episodes that have had the greatest impact on me and my family. So let's start with two episodes that Kate and I, my wife, we reference quite a bit to each other. And it's Walking Distance and A Stop at Willoughby. And you make the case that these two episodes are part of a character progression and a theme development that Serling began even before Twilight Zone. But let's, let's talk about these two episodes first. Let's talk about Walking Distance. Reader's Digest version of this story. What is this? Oh, I, I guess we gotta, we, do, we gotta do the spoiler alert. If you haven't seen The Twilight Zone, you should probably stop listening right now and go watch it and then come back and listen to this. So there we go. You got your spoiler alert. So Walking Distance, what's the Reader's Digest version of this story? Gig Young plays a businessman in his 30s, a burned out businessman who is being driven into the ground by the rat race and the New York lifestyle. And he is driving and his car breaks down and it, it happens to break down just about a mile or two from his the town where he grew up. And so he leaves the car with the mechanic to be fixed. And since he has some time on his hands, he decides, hey, that's walking distance. I can walk back to, to my hometown, see what it looks like now. And he indeed walks not only back to his hometown, he walks into his own past and encounters himself as a little boy and the hometown that he knew then. This, you know, one of the inspirations for this is that every summer, Rod Serling would pack up everything and his family, his his wife and two daughters, and he would spend the summer on Cayuga Lake at a, the, the family cottage on the lake and they would spend these idyllic summers he actually got a great deal of writing done during that time and he would always take one day during every summer to go back to binghamton which is where he grew up and that episode is basically about binghamton where he grew up and the park where you can go to today if you ever get to binghamton go to recreation park recreation park Marat Sarling was born on December 25th, 1924. Recreation Park was opened a few months later. They grew up together. And it had a carousel. It had a bandstand. It was the idyllic place of summer recollection for Rod Serling. So that episode is extraordinarily autobiographical. The character was about Rod's age when he was writing it, and he was feeling burned out by he had accomplished a lot he had done a lot you know since the end of the war as a writer and he always had this felt this pull of the past the nostalgia of, of his childhood and that's what that episode is about and it is an amazing i would i would get venture to guess that if you could have asked rod what his favorite episodes were he might have named walking distance and stop at willoughby they are certainly Rod's daughter, who is also a very fine writer, Anne Serling, and wrote the forward for my book. I think Anne, those are two of Anne's very, very favorite episodes too, as well. 
Yeah, in walking distance. So Martin Sloan, he goes back to his childhood and it seems like he gets frustrated because he wants to go back there and kind of recreate it. And then everyone there is like, who is this weirdo? You know, this 36-year-old man saying that he's this my son who's actually 12 or whatever, nine. And then his dad, finally, the Martin Sloan's dad finally realizes, okay, I think you actually are my son from the future. And his dad said, look, you know, I know you're having, it might be hard, you know, you're having a hard time in your life, but you you can't go back, you can't live in the past. Like you have to, you have to create those good memories for yourself in your life. Like this is, this is done. You have to move on. There's an amazing exchange. The dad says, is it so bad where you are? And Martin says, I thought so. And the dad says, look around, you know, you might find, you know, summers there too. And I think that's an amazing, you you have to live in the moment. You have to live, you can't live in the past. You can't, you know, it's one of the great episodes of lessons of that episode is you, you, you can't, you, you can love the past. You can appreciate the past, but you can't live in the past. You know, we're doing this interview. That was one of my mother's favorite lessons to us when we were growing up, you know, as we were getting older, she always talked about living in your time and living in your moment and not, you know, living in the past. And, you know, today is my, uh, is actually my parents' wedding anniversary. <laughs> so it has a sort of a pull for me too. And then in uh, a stop at Willoughby, same sort of thing. You have this guy in his 30s, late 30s, super successful, but he's just getting beaten down by the rat race. And my wife, whenever whenever we feel like really busy, we always, uh, you know, we got work and then there's kids. We got to be out and we're like, push, 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 like the boss in that episode. Right. Push, push, push all the way. Push, push, push. And to escape this, this guy goes to this idyllic past that he never actually lived while sleeping on a train on his commute. Yeah, he falls asleep on the train. He wakes up, and the train is an old-fashioned train, and the, the conductor is your old-fashioned conductor, and he's yelling out, Willoughby, next stop, Willoughby. And he train pulls in, and then you know he, he awakes, and he thinks, well, was it a dream? Was it not? And as things get worse and worse for him, he's determined to get off at Willoughby. He's determined to, to find that idyllic place and it's it's a very very bittersweet episode as we both know because it ends it it, it, like a lot of twilight zone it ends in a way that's sort of open to interpretation is what happened what exactly happens is 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 that a happy ending to willoughby or is yeah no you know (laughs) right sometimes you're having those moments like i want to get off at willoughby you're like wait a minute no maybe i don't want to get off at willoughby yeah, it's, it, it, it's a really interesting, or is he in a better place? Do we envy Martin? You know, the last thing we see of Martin is he's in this other realm. He's in this other place, and he's having this sort of Huckleberry Finn existence that he's dreamed of. And again, I'm not so sure it is as, as downbeat an ending as, as a lot of people think, but it is, you know, he he did, you know, one of Rod's th- you know, recurring themes in, in is was was how people get used up and we cast them aside and you know he basically talked about business doing that and he'll talk about it again his first great piece for television was patterns you know which was about aired about five years before the twilight zone premiered and patterns sort of addresses this issue of 
when you've taken all the talent somebody's had and you pushed them to the extremes and they've given you everything they have, how do we treat them at that point? How do we reward? Do, do we just cast them aside as Arthur Miller says in Death of a Salesman, like a piece of fruit, like a dried up thing? Do we just cast that aside then? And, you know, Rod is always sort of talking about that. He talks about, you know, I, I don't know how many writers in the 1950s and the 60s and even today sort of talk about how we treat people as they get older and maybe they lose a step and you know the twilight zone was always sort of talking they they, that recurs in a lot of episodes of how we treat aging parents how we treat older people and how we treat the, the most vulnerable people in our in our society how we treat children that's another theme of the twilight zone that that comes back a few times and i think it's something we all can relate to because you know we we are we, we pushed into careers we all get pushed hard there's there, there's always a lot of stress and you know there there is this kind of wow wouldn't it be nice to escape wouldn't it be nice to to go to a place like willoughby oh you know where you can live your life to a, the full measure as as they say right. in the episode and i think it's a a beautifully crafted episode and what's interesting about those episodes, you're not left with solutions about the problem, but you're less thinking about and stewing on. Like, like well, I think it, like Willoughby will come up throughout my life where I'm having a busy moment. I'll think about Willoughby. It's like, what? What has Willoughby got to teach me? So I think that's one of the, the geniuses of Rod Serling. Um, another iconic Twilight Zone episode is Time Enough at Last. Mm-hmm. Give us a summary of the show and then talk about why in the book you said this is like one of your least favorite episodes, even though it's iconic. So you got to talk about why you don't I, like. I, it. I, I don't want that to sort of color that because no, I, 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 it's not one of my least favorite because I really like almost everything about it. I like the way it's shot. I like the lead performance. I think it's you know Burgess Meredith plays a fellow who loves to read. He is a teller in a bank, and his boss, his wife, everybody is he's very unpleasant people. Basically, want him not to read. They're always trying to stop him from from reading. So he spends his lunch break in the bank vault, and when he does, there is a nuclear exchange. The world is destroyed, and he is saved. He is the last man on Earth. And he walks through the rubble, and he realizes everybody's gone. And he even contemplates suicide until he sees the library. And he realizes... This can be his survival. This He can go through eternity. There's books forever. He can read, and he now has time to read. There's time enough at last. And as he is stacking the books up on the steps of the library, the glasses slip, his reading glasses slip from his, his face and shatter. And he picks the glasses up and says, that's not fair. There was time. There was, at last, there was time enough at last. Now, it's, it is probably the most iconic Twilight Zone episode, as far as O. Henry type of ironic endings go, it, it is probably the most powerful, and it has probably the most powerful visual image of the Twilight Zone, the broken glasses. So I appreciate it on all those levels. But it is an outlier. And when I say that is, the Twilight Zone worked uh, according to a certain set of rules, and one of the rules was that you were rewarded and punished by what you brought into the Twilight Zone. If you brought in kindness, mercy, empathy, a caring for children and older people, if generosity, if you brought all of that into the Twilight Zone, you were rewarded for it. On the other hand, if you brought in greed, 
if you were mean, if you were a bully, if you brought in all of the nasty aspects of the human existence, you were punished for it. The fellow in Time Enough at Last, to me, to my mind, did nothing to merit that awful ending. You know, what is his crime? You know, he wants to read. Well, how dare he? So it's an outlier. It's a powerful episode, and I, and I don't want people to understand that I don't like it. But I do think it stands out because it's one of the episodes that does not really play according to the rules of the Twilight Zone. Now, having said all that, I, had, I could not ignore that episode when I wrote the book. And I could not not come up with a life lesson for it. And the life lesson was, again, was, was supplied by my mother. And the life lesson I put on it, which I think is a valid life lesson. When we were kids and we, there would be squabbles among us as we were five kids growing up. And as there were squabbles, if, if it was not settled to one of us, our satisfaction, we would say, but that's not fair. And my mother's favorite expression was, nobody said life was fair. I hated that when I was a kid. I didn't really like it in the Twilight Zone either, but I acknowledge it as the truth. Life isn't fair, and nobody said life was fair. And that's what Burgess Meredith's character says at the end. He says, that isn't fair. And we agree with him. It isn't fair. So that's, you know, that's my take on that episode. And by the way, Ann Serling uh, agrees with that 100%. She's <laughs> another one who, who just feels like the, you know, the payoff is not, uh, it does not fit any crime. He's not, he does not really commit a crime. Now, I've heard people say it's really about the fact that, you know, he is so absorbed in books, he's cut himself off from other people. And that is a legitimate interpretation of the story and if that's your interpretation no you can't be wrong in your interpretation i don't happen to agree with it because of how the characters are played the wife may be the most evil person in the whole history of the twilight zone and that's saying something that awful unpleasant who commits one of the worst crimes when she takes his book of poetry and says to him here read some poems for, for, from this for me. And he's delighted because he thinks, oh, she finally gets it. She finally understands my love of the, the written word and poetry. And he opens the book to see she has defaced every page. She has gone to the extent of making every page unreadable. I don't know if there is a, a, a more despicable act in the history of the Twilight Zone than that. That's that goes beyond mean, so no, I don't buy that <laughs> as, 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 as far as the uh, an explanation. But again, it's my it's my life lesson, and and I think it's a valid life lesson. We're gonna take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating. But finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Well, another episode that Kate and I reference again and again to our kids and to each other is A Nice Place to Visit. What's that show about? What do you think is the, the lesson from the show? Uh, well, let me back up on that one, uh, on a nice place to visit. Why is that one particularly resonant to you? Okay, so I guess we got to talk about, let's do the summary of the show, right? Okay, all right. You're the expert, so give us the summary of the show, and then we'll talk about why it resonates with me. It's, it's the episode where, it's, where the, the, the criminal gets shot, you know, it's Larry Blyden, it's one of Larry Blyden's two performances on it, and he plays a street thug just as common a criminal as you possibly can have. And he gets gunned down during a robbery and and, an angel, what he assumes is an angel appears who just calls himself Pip played by Sebastian Cabot. And he is there to give him every, everything he desires, everything he, he wishes for. And he gets the, the nicest apartment, you know, women throw themselves at him he got all of his life desires. Every time he plays a game of chance, any gambling, he wins. Every slot machine pays off. And at the end, he's bored. He becomes absolutely bored with the fact that he's got everything he wants. And, you know, he says to the angel that, you know, he doesn't even understand how he ended up here, you know, that maybe he should have been sent to the other place. And the angel starts laughing and tells him, but this is the other place you are in hell and this is going to be your hell so now i am dying to know if you'll pardon the expression there okay i am dying to know why that one <laughs> so appeals to you and well, your wife it's the idea that you can't know the sweet without the bitter right or mm-hmm. you and right. yet there has true. to be like an opposition in all things like if you want to know what hot is you have to know what cold is and we tell our kids when, you know, life just is, you get whatever you want, it becomes flat. And I think, I mean, it resonates with us kind of in our, this age of, you know, algorithms giving you whatever you want in terms of content. And you can get Amazon shipped to your door in a day. I mean, we're kind of creating worlds like this mobster of ours, right? You just get whatever you want, cater to you. And people are like, my life just feels existentially flat. And I'd say, well, that's, it's probably because of this, right? You, there's no friction in your life and you, you need that. That's, that's, yeah. our, that's our takeaway from it. And I agree, you know, that, that it goes back to another Mark Twain quote, which is, you know, Mark Twain once said something that along the lines of, you know, happiness ain't a thing in itself. You know, happiness is just a comparison to something that ain't happy. You know, that you need both. How, how would you have any gauge as to what's happy if that's all you knew? That right. you have to have misery in your life. You have to have tragedy in your life to understand what happiness is. So there has to be a contrast. So yes, that is true. And I think that's one thing that, that, that's true about the whole Twilight Zone is that the Twilight Zone was very good at sort of blending light and dark. You know, 
nothing ever works. You know, darkness is always pierced by by light in the twilight zone. And the flip side of it is that darkness is always lurking there, no matter how light you think something is. And, you know, it's interesting because it's a black and white show. So the contrast works extraordinarily well in the twilight zone. But that's, you know, the episode, and I put one of the, the lessons, the more obvious lessons I put on A Nice Place to Visit was that if something is too good to be true, it probably is. Mm, yeah. And I think that that's entirely, you know, every day, you know, and, 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 and as your kids get older, they're going to have to be even more wary of this than we are. Every day, there are scammers out there, you know, trying to find a way in by presenting something that looks too good to be true. And they've become very sophisticated about this. And they're getting better and better at it. And uh, everywhere you look, there are people who are basically trying to present something which is too good to be true. And the Twilight Zone told us very early, be wary of anything that's too good to be true. You know, if it, if it looks too good, it probably is too good. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of that too. You know, I mean, I think that that's a, a sort of just... Because one of the great also things about the Twilight Zone is there is always multiple lessons you can put on and interpretations on you can put on twilight zone and my interpretation may not agree with your interpretation which is good because you know you're bringing your life experience your belief systems your to, to the episodes that you you watch so your interpretation of a twilight zone probably won't always be the same as mine you know that's the great thing about metaphoric storytelling a primary example of this is the first chapter of the book that i wrote it's not the first chapter in the book. It's the chapter I wrote as the sample chapter to sell the book to, to publishers. And it was the one on To Serve Man. Yes. Now, again, that's one another of the one. most iconic yes. episodes. We love right? that episode, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think I put maybe, you know, seven or eight different interpretive lessons in that chapter. You know, that it could be, you know, some of them were funny and a little flip, and some of them were more profound. But they're all in there. They're, it's not like any one of them is illegitimate as a possible interpretation of, I think, you know, the, the, the main one I put on it was never judge a book by its cover. And that was somewhat being a little humorous with it. But it could be viewed as, as, as basically a retelling of the Trojan horse. You know, you could very easily just, just watch that episode that way. But again, there's some episodes which you could look at and you could easily come up with uh, five or six different interpretations for them. Yeah, to serve man. So it's similar to that, you know, if something's too good to be true, it probably is. So the, the story there is aliens come to earth and they basically said, humans, we're going to give you everything you want. There's this book that says to serve man on it. And we're going to give you everything you want. You can go to this planet and you're going to be fed. You're going to live for it. It's going to be great. And then in the end, they find out like there's these decoders who are trying to decode the alien language. And they finally realize to serve man is, it's actually a cookbook. To, it's, it's, it's a recipe book on how to serve man to these aliens to eat. Right. Yeah. And the, the Canimates is, is, is the, uh, yeah. the name of the race. And, and again, they, they, they arrive promising peace and prosperity and an end of hunger and an end of drought and all of this is like you know there it is if that ain't too good to be true i don't know what is another episode you mention a lot in the book is mr beavis 
And when we initially watched this one, we didn't like it. Like my wife and I didn't like it. And I think it's probably because like we're probably too much of practical squares. But his, you know, Mr. Beavis, his just his weirdness kind of it annoyed me. And I kind of felt like he needed to get his life together, like get a steady job, be, you know, just act, quit acting like an oddball. But after stewing about this episode for a while, I've come to appreciate the lesson from the show. So talk about what is what's the story of Mr. Beavis and what do you think the lesson is and why did you it seems like you were you were drawn to that one quite a bit. Yeah, I am actually. Mr. Beavis is um uh, he's an oddball. He is uh, an eccentric. He played by Orson Bean. He likes all these this this strange stuff like zither music and you know, it's odd because one of the things they say he likes is like he likes the works of Charles Dickens, and it's like, <laughs> why is that so odd? You know, you know, maybe in 1959, 1960, somebody you know drawn to an author from the previous century seemed odd. I don't know, but he's out of step with the world. He's out of step with what the world is supposed to be like for a young man in around 1960, and he's out of step at work. He's considered, you know, but the children love him because he is this kind of grown child himself. So the children of the neighborhood love him. His co-workers love him because he is, his boss hates him, but the co-workers love him because he is, he is warm and he is funny and he is, he is an accepting down to earth person. And, and, and it'd be tough not to like him, you know, if you encountered him as your co-worker or such and an angel played by Henry Jones appears and basically on the worst day of Mr. Beavis's life says you can have anything you want he offers him whatever he wants and of course everything the angel gives him makes Mr. Beavis more and more unhappy because it takes away the lifestyle that he was happy you know he was not successful but he was happy and he understood what it meant to be happy and that did not mean position and money and power and all of those things and at the end the angel sort of understands this and restores his life to the way it was i think you know among twilight zone fans this is not considered a favorite episode this would probably come out very low it also falls into the category of the fact that there's a general consensus that rod's comedies were not as strong as his other types of stories on the twilight zone by and large, true. Although he did write a couple of really good comedies, and I, I you know, Mr. Garrity and the Graves is, is a sterling example of how he could write comedy and be successful with it. But this one, you know, I think people thought it was a little bit. And I would have to say, you know, one thing I want to say is one thing I did not do in the book was I treated these episodes for the the metaphoric storytelling, not so much the quality of them. You know, would I rank Mr. Beavis among the finest Twilight Zone episodes of all time? No, I would not. Do I like the message? Oh, yeah, I like it a lot. <laughs> I, I do. Maybe because I, I, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm, that's kind of one of my roles in life is that I've, I've always been a little bit out of step. I have not lived my life in step. with, with And that also it does make you a bit of an outsider. And you are going to be rewarded for that. I always used to tell my students at Kent State this, you know, is that uh, there's a price to be paid for living life in your own way. And there are rewards for it. And, you know, hopefully the rewards will outnumber the, the drawbacks to living, you know, a life that is not prescribed. So, yes, I do like the, the message of that episode a lot. 
Another theme you see throughout the Twilight Zone is this idea of recapturing the magic of childhood. So I think the Mr. Beavis kind of plays on that a bit. But one episode that really captures it is Kick the Can. Yes. Summarize this episode and, and how has this episode helped you reconnect with the magic and playfulness of childhood? Well, Ernest Truex plays, who is a wonderful actor, and uh, he's also in a, another of the What You Need uh, as the, the 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 peddler who can always give people what they need out of his box of goodies. But, you know, he plays in the resident of uh, an old folks home, and it opens. He thinks his son is going to come and take him home, and uh, the son arrives to tell you basically there's no room. He's misunderstood him. He has to go back into the old folks home, and he sees a bunch of kids playing kick the can and it starts him thinking that maybe you get old when you start to think you're old. You get old when you stop playing. And he sort of thinks maybe the secret of life is kick the can. What if all of the residents could all play kick the can one night? Could they recapture their youth? Could they recapture the magic of youth? And his best friend tells him, you know, you're old, you're going to break a bone, what's the matter with you? You're acting like a fool. And, you know, there's an old saying, you get old when you stop playing games. Not, you know, you, you, you basically, when you, you're not in touch with your youth, you know, that you're, you, you, you know, you're no longer mentally young. And he tries to convince his friend to have an open mind and play kick the can and the friend refuses. And of course, it works. And the the residents are all transformed into children, except his best friend, who pleads with the children, "Take me with you." And it's it he they they run off because they don't recognize him anymore. And I think that that is a uh, it's a powerful episode. It really is, and it's not a Rod Serling episode. It's a George Clayton Johnson episode. The writer who contributed to the Twilight Zone, who was closest to Rod's philosophy and, and view of life, I think, was George Clayton Johnson. And that episode really, it, it's a beautifully performed. It's, it's just a gr- wonderful cast. And this notion that we now say, you know, you need to be in touch with your inner child. You need to be, you know, and I, I, I agree with that. You know, it's, just, it's, it's a difference between valuing the inner child and not being childish. You know, it's not, not living your, your life in a childish way, but never to lose sort of the childlike wonder that you had. And I think that's that's very much what that episode is about. It's not just about how we treat the older people in our lives. That's certainly part of it. But there's another part of it which talks about, you know, the magic of retaining G.K. Chesterton, who is a great, wonderful writer, and I always love reading Chesterton. You know, um, Chesterton once said that nobody achieves greatness who does not hold on to something of the nursery. I think that's a wonderful quote. I think that's just a wonderful thing. It's like that if you really do lose all sense of of that, you will never really achieve genius and greatness. And I think that's I think that's true. So we've been talking about the philosophical life lessons from the Twilight Zone, but as you said at the beginning, the show also has a creepiness factor that can be enjoyed in and of itself. So with Halloween coming up, what do you think are the scariest Twilight Zone episodes? Well, what scares you is an extraordinary... I'll ask you the same question, because what scares you is 
one of the most individual of responses anybody can have. I think this is like a Rorschach test. You know, what's the scariest episode of The Twilight Zone? For me, it comes down to two. The two episodes that I found the scariest, and I would not put these among the, the very, very, very best Twilight Zone episodes. If I was making a list of the very, very best, I would not put these. But I would put them at the top of the list of the scariest. One is 22. Yes. About the performer in the hospital, and she falls asleep, and she dreams every night that she's following a nurse down into the elevator, down to the basement, and there is a room that says 22, and it is the morgue. And this, the creepy nurse comes out and says, room for one more. And she goes off screaming, you know. And she finally is declared well, and she goes to catch a plane at the airport and the flight number is 22 and the boarding attendant is the nurse, the creepy nurse. And as she comes up with her ticket, the creepy woman says room for one more. And she goes screaming off and it's what saves her because the plane bursts into flames on takeoff. I thought that was an incredibly scary episode. <laughs> I did it 10 years old, and I still find it pretty unnerving. The other is, is the Ring-A-Ding Girl, uh, which is an odd one to say, but again, it also has a plane crash in it, and I'm not, real, I'm not afraid of flying. I've never, I've, I've flown my entire life. I've never feared flying. <laughs> but I think that has a, an unnerving quality because it's about a, an actress, a successful actress, a star, who is flying to a uh, next job. She's coming from Europe. And her fan club has sent her a ring, a very a ring with a large stone. And in the stone, she can see people from her hometown pleading for her to come home. And the next thing we see is that she's home. And she decides to put on a concert at the local high school auditorium where she had first appeared. And a lot of people are upset about this because there's a picnic. There's the annual picnic. And she goes ahead with the, the concert. And plane crashes into where the picnic was and countless lives have been saved because of her promising to do this concert at the high school and you later find out she was on the plane so it is uh, it's got that wonderful twist ending it's got that what did we just see quality to it but i think it's there's just something very very creepy about that episode too that always it always got to me so those are mine what are yours okay so two have something in common it's the first two are the living doll with Taki Tina. Sure. It's creepy. And then similar to that is the dummy. Also terrified. I think just, I think that's a creepy thing, like inanimate objects becoming alive. Creepy. And then the other one, I would say it's a good life with the kid who can like think people dead, basically. Yeah, that That's just, so. it's in the cornfield. Right. It's in the cornfield. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, th those are all good choices, you yeah. know, and, and I, again, I think it always goes back. It probably, you end up telling us a lot more about yourself than you do the Twilight Zone when yeah. you answer that question. So this is a good episode. So if you're looking for a scare for Halloween, 22, sure. Ring-a-ding girl, the living doll, the dummy, and it's a good life or great ones to creep you out. I'm curious. So those are the your things, you, your scariest episodes. What are you, if for someone who's ever watched the Twilight Zone before, what three episodes would you recommend starting with? I think to this day, if you look at the, the Twilight Zone, there are some episodes which have, have not dated well, 
but there are some episodes which actually have grown in resonance. And I think the one episode that has probably grown more in resonance than any other is uh, The Monsters Are Doing Maple Street. First season episode about a, you know, idyllic suburban street, Maple Street, where the neighbors all know each other and are all know each other's kids and, and, and life is good on Maple Street. And on a beautiful summer evening, just as people are getting ready to fire up the barbecues and the ice cream truck is going down the street, something flies overhead and then nothing works on Maple Street. It doesn't matter whether it's run by gasoline or electricity or whatever. The phones don't work. The cars don't work. Like, you know, the lights don't work. And they start to wonder, what was it? You know, whatever, was it a meteor? What was it? And as a teenager, a young kid says, you know, that this is how it happens in the stories. What stories? They, you know, send ahead a family that looks like us, you know, and the, the, what went overhead was a flying saucer. And that maybe one of the families that live on the street are not who they say they are. So they, everybody starts to look at each other with suspicion and doubt and all these people who were the best of neighbors just a little while ago now are sort of looking at each other with a new way. Maybe maybe they, these people are not. Now, obviously, Rod Serling was writing about the 1950s and the, era, the, the period we had just come through, the McCarthy era, the Red Scare, it, when people started to look at their neighbors as, you know, there was a communist hiding in everybody's closet and under everybody's bed. Maybe they were the, the family next door. And Rod was clearly writing about the price that we would pay as a nation if we went down this path of fearing and distrusting our, our neighbors and our fellow citizens. Well, that message has just gotten bigger and bigger as we've become more and more divided as a nation. I mean, it's become a cliche to say we are more divided now than at any time since the Civil War. I'm the, I don't know that that's true. There have been many times we've been very divided. People don't really know American history as well as they should, especially the people who espouse it. But it is clear we are at a point where the, the message of that story is very, very profound. Because what Rod was basically saying was what Lincoln tried to tell us, which is that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And Rod added to that, if we do not find a way to talk to each other, to have a discussion, a real discussion, without mistrust and fear and paranoia of creeping into it, if we do not find a way to get around that, we ain't going to make it, folks. You know, at the end, Rod's narration comes in at the end where he says that destruction does not always come with bombs you know that there are there are other weapons there there are weapons such as fear and mistrust and that is going to be our undoing it says you know so i think that that's that would be number 1 on my list of episodes that people should watch if they really want to know what the Twilight Zone could do at its finest. With that, I would add an episode called The Obsolete Man, which also stars Burgess Meredith. And also, to me, is a, is a, is a much better episode than Time Enough at Last, because I think the most heroic character in The Twilight Zone is the character played by Burgess Meredith in, in, in The Obsolete Man. He plays Romney Wordsworth, 
a librarian, Dickensian name, Wordsworth. You know, Serling is obviously trying to make a comment with this character's name. It, it, the, the story is set in a futuristic society, and the books have become banned. The written word has become banned. And the only thing that is allowed is what is prescribed by the state. And Fritz Weaver plays the authoritarian symbol of the state. And Romney Wordsworth has been declared obsolete. He, has been, he is a librarian. He does not deny his love of the written word and the books. And he proudly states that he is a librarian. And since there are no more books... Hence, no more libraries. There is no need for Romney Wordsworth, and he is declared by the state to be obsolete. And he can choose the method of his execution. So he asks for a bomb to be placed in his apartment to go off at a certain time, and he invites the Fritz Weaver character to his apartment, and he locks him in. And his death is going to be televised. And we get to see how Romney Wordsworth greets death and how the representative of the state greets death. And it's an amazing episode. The lesson which Serling says later, you know, that any civilization, any society that does not value the individual is obsolete. That state is obsolete. So there's a wonderful message about the worth of the individual, the worth of reading, the worth. It's the, almost the opposite of time enough at last because this celebrates the importance of the written word. So I love The Obsolete Man. That's one of my all-time favorite episodes. Uh, Monsters are doing Maple Street. And with that, I would probably add um, Walking Distance as a, probably if I was going to say three episodes that everybody should watch, those would top my three. Okay. Those are good ones. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, I have a website, which is com. I have a Facebook page. I'm always ready to interact with Twilight Zone fans. I'm one of the easiest people to find online and otherwise. So I always welcome that. The book is available through Amazon.com. It's been there. And hopefully this will uh, increase a little interest, will increase a little bit because 2024 will mark the Serling Centennial. And, and I'm on the uh, the board of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation in Binghamton, New York. And one of the things we are trying to do, and hopefully we'll do either you know next year, but certainly hopefully in time for the centennial year, is get a statue of Rod erected in Recreation Park in Binghamton. Brett, and I would just strongly recommend to any Twilight Zone fan, if you have not been to Binghamton, it's a wonderful pilgrimage. And Recreation Park is sort of the heart of the whole thing. And Recreation Park, by the way, still has a carousel. And the carousel, you can ride the carousel for free as many times as you want. And around the top of the carousel are panels, paintings. And each one depicts a scene from the Twilight Zone. And they were by a very wonderful artist named Cortland Hull. And so you, there's a bandstand, and in the middle of the bandstand, there's a gold disc, which has been planted in the middle of the bandstand. And all it says is Rod Serling, 
walking distance. So get to the bandstand and get to the carousel because it is your own way of experiencing walking distance. Well, Mark DeWidziak, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. My guest today is Mark DeWidziak. He's the author of the book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, markdewidziak.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash twilight zone, where you can find links to resources where we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time it's brett mckay remind you on listening one podcast put what you've heard into action mm-hmm.